helping you make the most of your money. It's time for Talk Money. Now, here's your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, welcome to today's program. Whether you're a baby boomer or a millennial, it doesn't seem to matter. A common concern is always money. I'm Jim Shoemaker. Welcome to today's program. We have a packed program for you today. One of those programs that people have been asking for, and uh, we're going to deliver it because we think it's important at this time because the both the parties have had their conventions, and so we're going to be talking about what is the effect to your portfolio, to the economy, to the country, if your guy who you're going to vote for doesn't win. Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today. My guest is Scott Powell, Scott Powell, Scott Jordan, and Michael Powell. Well, I just changed you guys around. That's okay. Welcome to the program, guys. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to be here, Jim. All right. We've got a lot of questions and, I mean, a lot of concerns. A lot of people have sent us some things just asking, say, hey, Jim, I want you to help us with this. But really, I think it's important. Here's the question that kind of, kind of I think, set us up a little bit because this person says, hey, I'm a faithful listener. I'm concerned about the election, and we hear that a lot. That's a, that's a people are concerned. Naturally, it's always pre-election year is always a lot of people are concerned about what's going to happen. Here's what she says. My husband says, don't worry about it. I, I don't know if that's his optimism <laughs> or what, but I believe the economy will collapse. This is her under Joe Biden. Now, that's, I understand where she's coming from. You always say, that she's saying this to us, don't time the market. And I know we talk a lot about that, the reasons why we don't feel that that's the way to do, be an investor. But here's, here's the point. We can't afford to lose 20%. So what do I do? Well, as you guys know, that's a question, I think, not just from this lady, but we're hearing it a lot today. And so for our listeners, we're not going to try to go through some of the, I think, thought process around what happens when when the presidential, when the candidate maybe that you were wanting gets doesn't get elected or it's a Democrat or a Republican. And, and I think that's important. I, I want to quote somebody, though, and this is you know, he's one of my favorite heroes, John Templeton. And he says, and, and I quote, investing's foremost dangerous words. And you all know what I'm about to say. This time, it's different. And, you know, a lot of people, that's how they think. I mean, this time, the election's different than it was four years ago, eight years ago, 12 years. It's, it's always we get into that because it's affecting us at that particular this particular time. So, Guys, I want to kind of give you a chance. One of the biggest issues is the election. Let's dive into it. Scott, I'm going to start with you. Markets seems to have been always performing under both parties. Help me with that. Yeah, Jim, when you look, if you look back, you look back over the past 75 years, S&P 500 has delivered an average annual return of somewhere in the neighborhood of 7, 7, I'm sorry, somewhere in the neighborhood of 11%. So, that's through Democratic regimes, through Republic regimes. The market has been on an upward trajectory through both parties. Um, 
U.S. economy has also expanded by an average of around 3% during those 75 years. So the stock market return has really only been negative for a presidential, um, for the four years of a presidential term when we've been going through some sort of a financial crisis. So just like you said, the markets have performed well under both Democrats and Republicans. So does that... Does that give us that sense of, okay, it's all right? I mean, when you think about that, yeah, you're talking about since since November, I mean, since, uh, not November, March, the market's been up, you know, the S&P's up about 9 9.5%, 9.7% year to date. Mm-hmm. So that's enormous recovery of what you think about when we look back when it was down almost 30%. Now that's, and you're saying, Scott, that overall for about 50 years, a little higher than 10.5%, almost 11% year over year. And so regardless of who's in the White House, what you're saying is, unless there's a financial crisis, would we classify the pandemic a year from now, as, if it's continuing, as a financial crisis? I think you could definitely classify what we're going through as, as a financial crisis. Um, but I would, I would caution to say that even through financial crises, over the long term, the market has performed well. Now, any kind of a crisis or any kind of, uh, you know, whatever's going on from day to day can affect the market and cause volatility. But over the long term, the market has tended to reward investors for being patient and staying invested. You know, the question came in and what she's saying is my husband says, don't worry about it. I can't we can't afford to lose 20 percent. And I guess what we have to say to that question is, yes, you can't afford to have 20% go out the window and never come back. Correct. Oh, yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. Michael, when you talk about the reality of better off person saying fully invested, as her husband's almost saying, stay fully invested. Talk about that. What, what's the reason for that? Well, you think about what Scott's been saying. Over the past 75 years, we've had a pretty good average return relative to you know what we think about in investing. And I know 2020 has felt like 75 years, but I mean it's been a it's been a roller coaster ride to say the least. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. And if you think about just in general about investing, and most people are talking about their 401k, their IRAs, retirement related things, it's not like Jim. When you retire, you're going to spend your entire 401k in the first year you retire. I mean, it'd be a great year to retire, but you still have to think about 10 years, 15 years, 20 years out. So when we're talking about staying fully invested regardless of who's going to be in the office, Democrat, Republican, it's going to rotate every eight years, at least. Not saying that Republicans always going to be in office or Democrats always going to be in office, but when those things change, it doesn't mean we got to change everything up again. The market has performed. What you're saying is the market has done well over a long period of time, regardless, back to your comment, Scott, financial crisis, even two world wars, even the depression is the mar- the market. If you just look at the graph, the market's a mountain chart and it's still climbing. You're going to have periods of downturns, but they're not permanent. And I think that's the, right. probably the comforting thought. Now, you have to be able to survive the downturn. Sure, sure. And stay the course. And that can be difficult. And I think, uh, you know, the listener's question and their concern is legitimate. I mean, it's, um, you know, you're seeing this a lot in the media now. The media is kind of, you know, there's an election going on, so everybody's trying to win. Everybody's trying to put out, you know, whether it's fear or whatever motivates people to get to the polls and vote. And I think that, you know, that people listen to that. It's legitimate to be concerned about that. 
Um, the the challenge or the what I would say would not be a good investment philosophy is I'm going only going to invest when the person I like is going to be in the White House, right? If you look back uh, over the last 120 years and and say I'm only going to put my money in the, into the market when a Democrat's in office, or I'm only going to put my money in the market when a Republican's in office, that portfolio would have underperformed the fully invested portfolio significantly, yeah, that's very a, much so. That's a great point, and I think people need to understand the more your time you spend participating in the market, the better you do, and that's just historical facts. Yeah. Now, again, past performance is never an indication of future performance, never, absolutely. but it is reality that is history. Yeah. And you think about the past 120 years, I mean, we've been through two world wars. Yeah, that's what I said. I, hope, that's good. I don't know if that's going to happen again in our lifetime, but two major financial crises. Those are big things that have happened, and yeah. if we can get through those in these past 120 years, I feel like moving forward, we should be fine. If you just tuned in, my guest is, with three of us are talking today, but you got Michael Powell, who is a millennial, Scott Jordan, who is a Gen Xer. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, the way you said that. <laughs> I just He's a millennial. He, just he threw a label you. out there. Yeah, yeah, right. And then I'm the old guy of the bunch, so we'll, uh, we'll leave it at that. The, uh, the the okay the, boomer, <laughs> the baby boomer. All right, but now guys, that's there is three different mindsets. Now maybe not so much with the Gen X or Scott, but definitely the millennials have a different mindset than say today my generation does. Michael, do you sense it? Oh yeah, I definitely do. <laughs> yeah, a lot of different aspects besides politics, yeah. but yeah. but sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, did I you see that smile on his face? We may, need, move we, on we may need a whole new segment for that. We'll see. All right. All right, guys. Here's where a lot of people ask questions, and here's where I think most people fear this election. If Joe Biden gets into office, then there's going to be this radical change of the economy. It's going to become, we're going to become socialist. I'm just going to take the elephant throw it right in the middle of the floor, we'll talk about it. That's what people think. That's what people believe. That's what people, that's the media sometimes trying to get that. Talk about a little bit of that in history, Scott. I want you to kind of help me understand, does that happen as much as people think it happens? Not as much as people think. Of course, you know, there's, uh, there's always signature pieces of legislation that a various administration will get through, but we tend not to radically re-engineer our economy. Um, you know, if you look back and you look at a chart and look at, at at GDP, for example, and you say what part of that's government spending versus consumer spending versus business spending, and you would think these radical re-engineerings of the economy would alter those numbers significantly, and they remain relatively stable throughout our history. Now, that's business? That's business. Government? Government spending. And, and then consumer, consumer spending, which is the largest part sure. of GDP, makes up over two-thirds of it. So... I think the fear of this radical reengineering rarely really takes shape or takes form. There's always a lot of talk, especially leading up to the the election, and there's fear now that let's say if the administration changes hands, we're going to see increased taxes or, you know, more regulation on businesses. And some of that may be true, but in general businesses will figure out how they're going to operate in the new environment and they will get back to doing what they do well, which is making all the 
products and services we all love and enjoy. You know, I think it's a great point. I'll go all the way back to Jimmy Carter. I mean, here's a guy that, boy, he took a beating in history. You know, sometimes we think history <laughs> yeah. or we, we remember what we want to remember about history. And, right. Yeah. You know, but history doesn't always seem like we don't remember exactly the case. And Jimmy Carter's a perfect example, Scott, of what you're talking about. Here's a guy that if you look at his presidency and you ask the average baby boomer, because they were there when that was going on, and you think, oh, he was a terrible president. But in reality, history, this is history, actual facts, he presided over one of the most significant job growths in the history of our economy. And that's right. what people don't see. And it's kind of like we forget history. I know Reagan. What about Reagan, Scott? I mean, there were some things there. Well, Reagan, you know, it was it was more of the narrative was everything he was doing was benefiting the rich and not the average man, but actually the, the incomes for the 50th percentile, more of the median group, grew by over 20% during his administration. And, you know, so he took a beating for a lot did. of stuff, he and did. yet he came out, you know, as the Reaganomics and yep. the way he structured things. A lot of things were extremely successful during his presidency, yep. and yet the media beat him up severely for some of the things he did do. Sure, and, and not a, not and not popular among some people, but you look back at even Obama's Affordable Care Act was going to be the death of small business, and small business was going to go away, and, and really the opposite happened. Small business grew during his administration. You know, that's so. what so many, I can remember that was the media frenzy, or that was basically what a lot of people believed, that Obamacare was going to bankrupt the, the small yeah. business, mm -hmm. and that was going to be because you couldn't afford it. Right. And yet, that's not the case. Here's the here's a question for you, though, uh, or a thought. I mean, Trump, uh, President Trump, if you look at his presidency with the fact that he goes through and he changes the tax law, that was supposed to spur a lot of capital spending. Mm -hmm. and, and that just didn't happen. And in fact, it actually slowed somewhat. Is your thoughts on that? Well, I think that that just points to the fact that there are a lot more issues at play than that one one incident. You know, you look at, okay, why didn't business spending accelerate? I mean, we dropped the tax rates. You would have thought that would have unlocked a lot of value in the businesses and, and spurred spending along. It hasn't happened yet. Now, that doesn't mean it won't happen and we won't see it in the future, but I think other things going on in the economy, and especially now with COVID, we're slowing some of that down as well. I think, too, the tariffs. I mean, you know, and if you look at where he he produced a very, you know, aggressive tax bill to spur some of the capital spending. I mean, Section 179, the whole thing, he just really opened the door big for that. Mm -hmm. The problem is he might have been trying to do too much. And even with going back to taxes for a second with Trump making this new change in 2018, those tax laws are set in until at least, what, 2026? I think it's 26. Yeah. So even if we have a new president in office, Democrat, independent, whoever it is besides Donald Trump, you can't really make that change of taxes. So that's the biggest fear I hear some people say, well, they're going to change taxes. They're going to taxes, taxes, taxes. But technically. Technically, that's not going to happen. Not so, going to happen yet. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's important to keep in mind, too, the, the tariffs, the, the way he battled tariffs, which I think was important, Slow because any CEO sitting around the boardroom trying to move into thinking about doing, you know, capital expenditures had to back up and say, wait a second, we don't know who we're going to be trading with. Right. We don't know how right. we're going to be trading. That had to be so lucky yeah. had too many things. But I think it's important for people to understand we don't radically engineer the economy. Scott, you mentioned it. Business, government, 
consumer. That's the three major part. And historically, if you go back 50, 75 years, it just hasn't changed much. Absolutely. I think you really have to give credit to the founders of our great country for the checks and balances that they put into the system and the foresight they had to try to limit the power of any one group. Um, and that has uh, served us well. And that, that goes back to what you're saying. It, it doesn't allow usually for a radical re-engineering of our economy. It really makes it feel like the pre- it always just seems to me like, you know, growing up, the president is that guy who yeah. makes all the decisions and makes everything change, but really it doesn't. Right. If you look right. at all the, like you said, the checks and balances. So, Well, the checks and balances is, I think, what makes our economy run and makes it work. That doesn't mean that a, you know, if the president takes both houses mm-hmm. and, you know, okay, so he's had, and we've seen that, Obamacare, yeah, the tax, yeah. you know, the tax changes and two, those were, everybody's on a, for two years. But historically, at the end of the two years, it's a switch. Right, it's a switch, and so they lose lose majority control, and, and that goes back to them really getting about one signature piece of legislation through. Well, there, again, back to the taxes or Affordable Care Act, you know, the whole idea was it's usually in both cases the president will lose the single-party rule, either the House of Representatives and then it's to the opposition party, and that's the— Founding fathers yep. rule. That's the way yep. they wanted it to be. It takes the three, you know, the the executive branch, the two parties, the, the you know, the, the House of Representatives and the Senate, and that's. I mean, what a system! It, it was great. We need to applaud design. the system. What about the monetary policy that we're facing? And if you just tuned in, let me introduce these guys again. I got a millennial, Michael Powell. Got a Gen Xer, Scott Jordan. And I'm here just to kind of set the seat of the <laughs> baby boomers, okay? Giving us a historical yeah, perspective. Historical perspective. <laughs> yeah, you guys made a comment. We were thinking about this program. That Yeah, never mind. I won't go there. Uh, but the reality is we're talking about does the presidential election really affect you overall? Does it, could it cause you to lose all your retirement funds. The question came in, I'm concerned about the election. My husband says, don't worry about it. I believe the, she says, I believe the economy will collapse under Joe Biden. And you've always said, she's talking to us, she says, I listen every week. Jim, I enjoy the show. Thanks for you know doing what you do. We, you always say, don't time the market. By the way, Michael, I want you to talk about that later on the show. But why she said, because we do say that a lot, but I want you to talk about why we do that. Mm-hmm. And she says, we can't afford to lose 20% of our, in, of, our in, of our investment. What do I do? Now, I appreciate where she's coming from, and I think it's a good question. I think we hear the question a lot. We're talking about the presidential election. Is it a Democrat? Is it a Republican? Or is it going to crash because it's a Democrat? Or is it going to crash because it's a Republican? What's the answer? We're finding out doesn't always make a lot of difference, but that's a big but. What about the monetary policy? And that seems to always, in my opinion, it's what really matters. The old saying is, don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed, absolutely. If You know, looking back, the monetary policy it seems to have had a bigger effect than who's in office. What's going on? You know, you look at uh, uh, both Bushes, actually, they were kind of the, the recipients of a tightening monetary policy, and the economy didn't do as well under them. And then you look at even Trump in his first two years was, was part of a tightening monetary policy. Obama kind of had a benign environment, not, not a lot of rate rising, and, and also some lowering there, and, and the economy did well under him. So it, 
if you look historically, really what the Fed is doing has a little more impact than who's in office. That's a, makes, that's a lot of people need to understand that. What are the kind of the target rates? I think we ought to review that for people. Scott, do you just remember those right off the top of your head? I mean, the, the target you rates. Know that, you, know. <laughs> <laughs> you know I do. You know I do. You're so smart. You know. so, Go for it. Yeah, we're trying to get unemployment down below about 6.5%. Uh, you had the unemployment rate that, that is current right now. Current right now is 8.4. 8.4. So we're moving in the right direction, right direction. and rapidly, rapidly. which has yes, been an are. amazing recovery. Uh, looking to increase GDP somewhere between 2 to 3% and contain prices, price stability, or inflation. The Fed is targeting around 2 to 2.5%. Now, they just changed a little bit about the methodology of how they're looking at that, and they're they're doing average inflation targeting versus a specific number, which should allow for a little more flexibility and allow the economy to run a little hotter or, or run a little higher without them raising rates so quickly. All right, guys. I mean, I think it's important. We say don't fight the Fed. We're saying it doesn't. Don't play the partisan. If it's a Republican, you're in. If it's a Democrat, you're out. You know, don't do that. Don't time the market. Normally, just look at the whole idea behind the fact that a presidential election is not going to make a change, not going to matter. But what about the popularity of the president? Does the market, if the, if the you know, I'm going to ask you this, Michael, mm-hmm. if the president is real popular, does that mean that the market performs better or if nobody likes him? Is that bad for the market? Well, how we define it popular? Is it 51%? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 51 versus 40. I feel like that's the only way we're going to find popularity, yeah, right. you know, in general. Because I feel like you ask anybody, it doesn't matter if they're younger, older, they're going to have their opinion on Donald Trump. All day long, all day yeah. long. And this isn't a time to do, you know, any type of bashing on any president whatsoever. But I feel like the stock market does not care who – loves the president, who hates the president, because it comes down to businesses and people spending money. We talked about what really drives the market. That's consumer spending. If more people have jobs, more people have money to spend, that's really going to derive that more than whether or not you like what Donald Trump puts on his Twitter.com. That's a good point. So that's reality. Popularity of the president doesn't drive the market. Right. And some of the best market returns we've had is when presidential approval has been in a low range between 36 and 50 percent. So, so when most people don't so like the president. Over half the country is not liking the president, and the market's doing well. And the market's right. doing well. So Sounds I, like today. <laughs> it does sound like today. Yeah, so, I mean, it's really hard to discern between any direct relationship, whether or not you like the president, whether it's Biden coming in or Trump continuing to stay on. It really doesn't have any correlation with what the stock market does. You know, I like reading the history of the presidents. And you know, most of you know that I've read the, a lot of the biographies of the president. Reality is there's a couple of things. The media has always beat up the guy sitting at the White House. It's always been that way. He's, yeah. he's uh, in the Oval Office. And, you know, let's see what the media can say. But let me read you this. It says, newspapers filed, okay, are filled with all the filled with all the infective disappointment, ignorance of facts, malicious falsehood, could invent, misrepresent my politics. George Washington. It's amazing. <laughs> this is the one I like the most. Nothing can now be believed which is seen in a newspaper. Truth itself becomes suspicious by being put into that polluted vehicle. So the president's always liked the press. Always liked the press. <laughs> I think that's the old school way of saying fake news. <laughs> yeah, fake news. I believe it is. I believe it Thomas is. Thomas Jefferson said that. <laughs> Guys, when we come back, I want to talk about something that is important when we talk about 
literally the election. We call it, well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what it's called when we, when we come back. It's something you want to know. By the way, we're going to eventually put together a portfolio for whomever is in the Oval Office. You don't want to miss that part. Coming up, I'm Jim Shoemaker. My guest, Scott Jordan, Michael Powell, and you're listening to Talk Money. Podcasts of Talk Money are available in the iTunes store. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with more Talk Money after this. Jim Shoemaker, Scott Jordan, and Michael Powell are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securian Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FNIRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, we're talking about politics. We're talking about presidential elections. And does that affect you when you're looking at your investment portfolio? The question was, I feel very concerned about the election of Joe Biden. That's my paraphrase of what she said. The question that came in, if you got a question for us, just simply send it to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. That's talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. We'll be glad to get that on the air for you. She says, I feel like it's going to collapse the market. The economy's going bad. Uh, my husband says, or you say, don't time the market. We can't afford to lose 20%. The question, what do we do? We're talking about politics in general, Democrats or Republicans. What does it do when you're looking at who's in the White House? We've kind of finding out, guys, that you're pretty good at putting this together. It really doesn't matter. We need to be careful. In fact, I've got something for you from the Department of Commerce, and I love this. I just like what it says. Congress returns to its August recess, from its August recess this week. Okay. Negotiations on another stimulus bill continues. Everybody knows the media's really thriving, pushing that hard. Currently, you ready for this? Democrats would support no less, no less than $2.2 trillion dollars while Republicans would support no more than 1.3. Well, they're close. Yeah, they're close. <laughs> Just round off a few trillion. Yeah, what, 900 billion? billion. <laughs> <laughs> Just a, a 900 billion. Now, here's the point. You know, you know and I know, we, and our listeners know, they will come up with a bill. It won't be, will. It won't be the Democrat number. It won't be the Republican number. They will have to compromise. Now, I guarantee you they will milk it for everything they can. Absolutely. And us, the listening audience, have to go around and get concerned about it. And if you're a millennial, Michael, you build opinion. If you're Gen Xer, you build an opinion. If you're young like I am, you, you know, you step <laughs> out there further. I mean, the bottom line is, and we, and we, we, we get caught in to what's being said, and it creates all kinds of stress anxiety, and that's just a perfect example of how we push this, and there's no question around it. But I said before the break, I don't want to confuse partisan politics with market analysis, and there is one thing, Scott, that you know, we know, we look at all the time, especially in an election year. What is that? And we look at it, and you know the politicians and the people running for office look at it as well. I mean, you think about partisan politics, there's, there's a lot of talking points getting thrown out right now trying to win votes, right? 
And then there's, I'm an investor. Let me look at the market and what's going on. And we look at that, that thing called the misery index. We were looking at a chart of this the other day. Now, the misery index, if you're not familiar with what that is, that is a combination of the unemployment rate and the inflation rate. Unemployment rate going up, that's people, it's miserable. They're jobs. trying to find jobs. Inflation's going up, my money's not going as far. So we call that the misery index. And an interesting point is, an incumbent has historically a high percentage of time lost the race as the misery index was rising. So conditions are getting worse in the economy. The incumbent loses the race. Contingent, uh, conditions getting better in the economy, they tend to win, historically on average. I mean, not every time, but that kind of tells you right there they know that. There, there's Neither one of the politicians are going to want to crash our economy just to make a point on one of their talking points. So I think, you know, keeping that in mind and realizing that the great companies of this country are going to get back to doing business, they're going to make the products and services that we know and love, we're going to vote with our dollars and buy those products and services, and neither politician is going to want to interrupt that too much. Well, I think it's important that we say that in the inflationary rate is under 2% right mm-hmm. now. Unemployment has come down to it's 8.4 which is right along yeah. with the recession that occurred in 08. And there is anticipation that we could see it get to seven, you know, right. by the time. So we're looking at a pretty decent misery index. It's coming down. Yeah. It had so, a spike, yeah, kind of so an unnatural spike. If you go back spike, three yeah. months ago, it wasn't that good. It was, yeah. uh, in fact, if the election was three months ago, it would have been very tough for the incumbent to continue mm-hmm. to be the president. Coming down, though, the misery index, and you said not, not, Every time. Not every time. It's not but, a predictor. But, but it's really, it, it's pretty, really It's close. pretty good indicator. Yeah. Well, guys, here's what we want to say. I mean, don't let all the election noise panic you out of the market. But, Michael, I know that happens. I know people become fearful. I want you to help our listening audience. This lady is saying, what do I do? Let's go through how to structure a portfolio during an election year. Okay. And afterwards, I guess. Yes. So you think about investments, we have to construct a portfolio that's important to our overall financial picture. You got your retirement money for the long term. You got your checking and savings for your short-term emergencies, things like that. But we know life storms will happen. And we know, uh, of course, we don't anticipate them happening when they happen, but they do happen. So we have to be prepared for those. It's kind of like if you've been on a flight before If you don't know there's going to be turbulence on the flight, you're going to be very concerned and think you're going to crash or something like that. And if you've already been through that before and seen that turbulence and going back to investments, there's going to be volatility. There's going to be times where you're going to be unsure what the next move should be. And we feel like all the time if there's something bad happens, we got to do something. we got to make a change. And, you know, with investing, it's usually the exact opposite of that, just like at the beginning of this year. If you would have made a knee-jerk reaction with your portfolio, Jim, you would have probably kicked yourself in the butt. Well, you think about that. I the mean, second quarter of the year, it just—I mean, literally went right back a, up. The market, the S and P 500, according to some research that we've done, is up 9.7 year to date through August the 31st. That's including what happened right. in the downturn. And my big point is that if you're comfortable with this decision-making process or if you have somebody with you holding your hand with that process, then you're going to be a whole lot more prepared when another storm comes because it will come. It will come. That's a great point. All right, before we get to putting together 
an investment strategy, as you said, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's an election, what, what you know, we can go through it, all the scenarios. You called it the storms. You called it, I mean, the turbulence in the airplane. I get that. I can feel that. I've sensed that. So before you move into knowing how to design the strategy, choosing the right type of portfolio, what do you do, Michael? Because I think people need to understand it's just not a throw a dart at the dartboard and that's your portfolio. What tell, Talk us through that. Well, first thing I do is want to have a conversation and make sure what's important to that client or that person who's looking to invest and what's what's their values with it. Because that's that's really going to drive what what they're going for, for their goals, dreams, and other desires. And when you look at all that stuff, you help them get organized and make sure that if there is a storm, are you prepared for the short term? Are you prepared for the long term? So before we even talk about a portfolio construction, we got to talk about the 10,000-foot view of really where you want to be, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I think sometimes people forget that that's very important. And uh, and yet I, I sense sometimes we get people get in a hurry. And this is this is the methodical walkthrough. It's a conversation about what's important, and uh, you know that's that you got to ponder that for a while. Then you define the goal. I understand that. What's after the well? You said that you get everybody organized. What's the last thing I guess about this that probably most people forget? You create a strategy that not only it mitigates risk, but it helps you basically implement the things you're going to do in that investment strategy. So I mitigate risk. I position myself in a good way for the long term, but I also follow through with it. If there it, it's, I've said this quote before on the show before, but everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. That was from Mike Tyson. And yeah. that's a very common thing to always realize in investing that there are going to be times where your portfolio gets punched in the face. So we have to be knowing that that's coming to be able to make sure that you stick to your plan because if you've gonna if you're gonna retire in twenty five years, doesn't mean you stop saving if your portfolio goes down. Right? Good point. So it's it's continuing to implement that strategy along the way. Well I like the fact that you talk about mitigating risk because that's uh, that's so easy to talk about, sometimes difficult to do. In fact, I think you have to think about your their risk tolerance. Mm-hmm. What what is their risk tolerance? And you know, let me make sure we define risk tolerance. Willingness to take risk. I, I kind of refer to it as my shave factor. Yeah. Am I going to cut my neck because yeah. I'm so worried about the market? Yep. I want to be relaxed in my sleep factor. Am I going to sleep well at night? Whether What are my liquidity needs? What is my tax situation? And you said 25. What's my time horizon? Mm-hmm. All those components play into mitigating risk. And we're never going to get rid of all risk. There's no risk-free formula to anything. Because if I don't invest and I sit in cash or in savings, and of course we know savings doesn't really pay anything to us. It's not really there for that purpose. But inflation, we talked about that. If it goes up 2% and your account's not making anything, you're losing money. You're losing purchasing power in the long term. So, well, you can never get rid of risk. But there are things you can do to mitigate risk, like you said. And that's what diversification comes in, asset allocation, those things that we'll probably well, talk about. That's very, a very bit later. important. Help me, Scott. Tell us some of the things that you look at 
with a client and dealing with designing a portfolio, the types of risk that a person needs to understand. I think that's important because there's, you know, we all talk about market risk, and that's the risk that the market's going to go up and down. Uh, there's interest rate risk. You know, if you're going to, part of your portfolio is in fixed income style instruments, there's interest rate risk there. As, as interest rate rise, the value of those fixed in, income instruments can go down. Uh, Michael mentioned inflation risk. That's a big one. That's one of the reasons most people need to invest in what we call risk assets is because they have to outrun inflation. You know, have we, to outrun that rising cost. And we talk about that today, outrunning inflation. Yep. You know, most investors today that are retiring, the baby boomers, remember when inflation was just out of control in the late 70s and early 80s. That's when Reagan got, became president. That's his right. tax law change right. there. Yet today, since that time, and you go back to Greenspan, you know, there's, there's just a lot of changes that would t- have taken place, give people credit for doing the job to manage inflation. But inflation is always lurking in the corner. It's like always the rattlesnake. Is, yeah. It's over there. As long as it stays over there, right. it's not going to bother us. But if it gets out into the room, I want to know where it is. Exactly. And that's exactly how right. you have to look at inflation. Right, right. And so we have to have a an investment strategy that takes that into consideration. We have to assume that we're going to experience some rate of inflation over our lifetime and plan for that. But here's here's a risk that not many people think about, and that's the risk of not achieving your goals. So Michael mentioned, you know, putting putting money in cash, or let's let's use the old analogy of burying it in the backyard. That may seem safe. That may seem like the more comfortable option. I don't have to deal with market volatility. But that may not allow me to reach my goals because, again, that's that's why we start. And I think Michael did a good job explaining that is is really defining that. Why? Why are we investing this money? What are we trying to accomplish? And then we have to put together that portfolio to mitigate that risk, but also give us a good chance of reaching those goals. Give us the type of returns that we need to reach those goals. Well, you've talked about market risk, interest rate risk, the risk of not achieving a goal. I appreciate you saying that. Then you talk about inflation uh, political risk. Politic- we talked about right that <laughs> one, you know, about that. But Currency. the reality is, you mentioned the why, and I want to make sure we go back over that. This is the conversation, Michael, that you're saying you have to have with someone to understand what's important in their life. Mm-hmm. That's critical. Clearly defining or helping them define their objectives, their goals for what they're trying to invest for organizing and helping them get organized, get you know, go through that whole process of their current financial reality, where it, where it looks like, and then mitigating the risk and, and helping them understand that. And it's just like the lady that had the concerning question at the beginning of the show. Hey, I, we can't afford a 20% downturn in our portfolio or loss. And you got to look through someone's situation, too, and ask them that question. Are you comfortable with that? Because a lot of times in some portfolios, you very well could be down that much at one time. It's like if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. And what I mean by that is if you can't stand the volatility of that investment going down at that direction, then you probably shouldn't be that much in that particular thing. That type of And that's why diversifying and maybe positioning yourself to a more conservative way even though it may not achieve as much as someone who's super 
aggressive, but it's going to make you feel more comfortable. You just got to make sure you're saving it up for it. Michael, I mean, Scott, you talked about this. You had a meeting yesterday where the husband was risk-oriented. Very aggressive. Very aggressive. The spouse, the, the wife was not. not. Not so much. So tell me about that conversation. Uh, you know, that's and that's not unusual to see that, you know, within a couple there will be one person that has a lot more tolerance for risk than the other. But that's where you have a conversation again when you understand what you're trying to accomplish, let's say I have a certain retirement income goal I'm trying to target, and I can run some calculations and say, you know, as long as I get, say, a 4 or 5% rate of return, I can hit that goal. Well, that gives you the option to say, I don't have to take as much risk to hit that goal. I can take more if I want to, but I don't have to. So, that goes back to, hey, why are we doing this? What are we trying to do? Let's don't take any more risk than we have to. And that's where you can have a conversation with that couple and say, hey, what are we both going to be comfortable with? Now, in their situation, we put a little bit risky and a little bit more conservative. And they felt good about that. But, it, that you know, maybe it's, it's we all come to a compromise and say, hey, this portfolio right here is a little less risky, but it has a history of producing the types of returns that we need to hit our goals. So we're okay with that. That's good. Scott Jordan and Michael Powell, we're talking about portfolio construction regardless of the time, but basically design what are we talking about during a political or a pandemic, a political upheaval, if you want to call it that, (laughs) the presidential. But it's always like this, and we're trying to share with you some of the thoughts. We covered that at the first half of the program. Now we're trying to help you understand how to put that portfolio together Knowing your goals, knowing what's important, organizing and helping you, and then mitigating the risk. And I appreciate the way you guys have done that. But now, I think, Michael, you mentioned this earlier, and you we talked about it just briefly and just slid right by it. But you said, here's coming to the things. You start portfolio construction, the idea behind asset allocation. Help us understand what you're talking about. With asset allocation, you got to think about, we use modern portfolio theory for a lot of different ways we design a client's portfolio, whether it's for retirement or other goals. And really, that what that really is doing is you're trying to seek an optimal return given a level of risk, meaning that I can't go and earn a certain percentage if I can't have any type of risk on the table. There's no such thing, like I said earlier, there's no such thing as a, a guaranteed investment that has zero risk with it. There's just not out there. But really when you're looking at planning for someone, I have to know that I'm trying to achieve the best return with as little risk as possible. And sometimes that's a little bit of different things. Like I may have more stocks or I may have more bonds. Just thinking 10,000 foot level here. Okay, sure. But when you dive in deeper than that, you got to think about what those dollars are doing, where they're invested at. Like stocks, I could be in American companies. I could be in international companies. I could be a combination of the two. So you're talking so. about asset allocation is stocks, bonds. And cash, and essentially. Cash. So you're saying based on that risk tolerance that we said, the amount of risk, that sleep factor, that shave factor, as I said, mm-hmm. that person's tolerance is going to make that portfolio be allocated differently. And Michael, I mean, Scott, you said that's really around the idea between the husband being more risk-oriented, Right. she was less risk-oriented. Right. Makes a lot of sense. All right. I got the asset allocation. You now talk about diversification. We say that, we talk about that, help our listening audience in the remaining few minutes we've got understand what do you mean by diversification? You got to think about historically that there's no single investment that works all the time. 
It's kind of like the the best football team is not going to be the best football team the next year or the year after. Don't so. tell that to an Alabama fan. <laughs> no, don't <laughs> tell it to there. I'm sorry, our Tennessee most, You think a lot of long-term history, right? right? But you think about that, you want to spread your assets out in different investments. When I talked about if I'm buying stocks, I'm not just going to buy all of Google, for example, or all Netflix or something like that, or like a bigger U.S. large company. I'm just giving out random examples, sure. nothing in particular. Sure. We're not recommending. Those are not, not meant to be recommendations. <laughs> not to be recommended. <laughs> but everyone knows what those companies those are. are yeah, right? So you're not buying all exactly. of them. You're buying some. It's not like we're putting all of our eggs in one basket. Right. Everybody knows that. So I may have some international companies, American companies, bonds. I may not have all American bonds. I may have international bonds, government bonds, and also corporate bonds. So if I'm going to be longer term, History shows us that stocks have always outperformed bonds. And in history, bonds have always outperformed cash. But we know what one thing has always outperformed cash, inflation. So if we can, as long as we're trying to achieve at least outpacing inflation, um, but also making sure that our risk isn't at an uncomfortable level, I think we can really make sure that diversification works. All right, so diversification doesn't guarantee no, it does that not. you're eliminating risk totally. No. It's just softening it and maybe to the point of helping you understand that diversification guides you through. Back to your, your analysis a while ago of the idea of being in a plane. When the stewardess, the flight attendant comes on and says, we're, you know, we pilot said we're going to go through turbulence, buckle your safety belt, your seat belt, and you think, okay, that's kind of preparing me mentally. Right. I may get a little bumpy ride here coming up. So that's kind of what you're saying is asset allocation doesn't eliminate no, it the does bumpy not. ride. Doesn't guarantee just, no losses. Right, but it, it just kind of gives you the preparation for it. Hey, that's pretty good analysis, wasn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. It's I decent. like that. That's decent. Yeah, it's decent. <laughs> oh, you guys are brutal. Brutal. But guys, okay, in the closing few minutes, I know one thing that so many people, they should know it's important, but have a tendency not to do it. And I want you to talk about, Scott, rebalancing the portfolio. I think rebalancing is critical. You know, as a firm, we believe in it. Uh, and what you're basically doing when you're rebalancing, Michael was talking about asset allocation, how much is in stocks, bonds, cash, and then diversifying that among different managers and geographies and, and all that good stuff. Well, you know, not everything's going to go up and down at the same time. So some things are going to do better some years than others. And one of the disciplines that we employ to take advantage of that is to rebalance the portfolio. And that's simply... You know, usually you're selling the winners, the things that have done well, and you're buying the things that haven't done so well during that period. But you're also recalibrating the portfolio back to your original risk tolerance. So you're not letting it get out of balance and get too overweighted in equities or too overweighted in a specific style of equities. You, t you take those uh, gains and reinvest them in some of the things that haven't done as well, and rebalance the portfolio. It's a well, discipline. It's a discipline, and I appreciate it. Speaking of discipline, one of the things we say on this program all the time is managing your investment behavior or your your anxiety or, yeah. you know, the stress, you yes. know, all that stuff that goes on, and just turn the media off. Don't right. get caught up in that. But, Michael, I want to give you a chance here in the closing few minutes one of the biggest things you say is stick to your strategy. You've done all the work, mm -hmm. and so don't allow the emotions to get, you know, change in your behavior. Stick to the strategy. Right. If your goals haven't changed, then you shouldn't change your strategy. 
Um, it may seem like a very emotional time because, you know, we've gone through bear markets before. We've gone through corrections before. Um, and that's something that we always have to know is going to be there. Kind of like if the attendant, like you said, calls up on the airplane and says, hey, we're going to go through some turbulence. Just remember, that's usually going to happen. Um, so we got to make sure you stick to that strategy no matter what happens in that scenario. And it's very difficult to accomplish this alone. What I mean by that is having some sort of professional along the way holding your hand, making sure that you don't make a rational Because you could be your own worst own enemy, right? Just kind of like with anything we try to do. Um, if you're thinking about it too much and you don't have anybody to talk it out through, then it's probably going to cost you something if you decide to make an irrational decision. So just remember, if you stuck a plan in there, stick to it. Because like Scott said in the beginning of the show, whether it was a Democrat or Republican in office, kind of tying this back up to politics, if you would have stayed fully invested over that 120 years or over 75 years, you're going to come out ahead whether you waited until a Biden's in office or a Trump's in office. That's great, great, so. great point. So, guys, you've done a great job helping us put together the portfolio regardless of what's happening as far as in the market's concerned. Who's in the office? presidential white house it doesn't make a difference who's in congress we just now we know it creates that anxiety Mm -hmm. just manage it well you've been listening to kwam the mighty 990 fm 107.9 and am 990 my guests have done a phenomenal job talking about presidential elections and putting together a portfolio regardless of who's in office scott jordan and Michael Powell at Shoemaker Financial. If you'd like to ask Scott or Michael a question, give them a call at 757-5757. Well, next week, you do not want to miss the program. Ted Miner will be talking about top concerns of Americans, and it's not going to be political. Can you believe it? Michael Powell will be back. He's going to help us understand the importance of disability insurance. And we're going to be talking with some people from Angel Street here in Memphis. You don't want to miss that program. That's next Saturday at 10 a.m. right here on KWAM, the mighty 990 FM 107.9 and AM 990. We're here every week helping you make the most of your money. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and this is Talk Money. Talk Money is produced by Greg Ratliff. Guest and content coordination, Francis Fortner. Production assistant, Eleanor Moskovitz. Compliance officer, Tommy Armstrong. Mid-South History Moment, Rebecca Brazier and Drew Johnson. We'll see you next week on Talk Money. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information is not investment advice or a recommendation. Investments will fluctuate, and when redeemed, may be worth more or less than when originally invested. The S&P is an unmanaged index of 500 large-cap stocks. Investors cannot invest in an index. Financial advisors do not provide specific tax or legal advice, and this information should not be considered as such. You should always consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your own specific tax or legal situation. Jim Shoemaker, Scott Jordan, and Michael Powell are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securian Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FNIRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. A woman will sell her precious